Has this ever happened to you? I went to Sunday school every Sunday, and now I can't hear a loud horn without having an anxiety attack. Hi, I'm recently deceased but never forgotten Christian music sex symbol Carmen. I'm calling Collect from the Big House, meaning heaven, not jail, to tell you how to get answers for your religious traumas. I started the excommunication station, and now I realize my empathy felt weird when I was a kid, and how the Council for National Policy, a shadowy Christian organization, controls just about fucking everything in America. So if you've been looking for answers, or if you've ever been on the outside wondering, hey, what's really going on in the church? These gobble ghouls have the info you need. So look up the excommunication station wherever you get your podcasts and all the socials under XCOMPOD. Peace be with yous. Is it time for a mind shift? If you don't know what that means, then join your host, Dr. Clint Haycock, a former evangelical Christian pastor and Bible college teacher of over 20 years, along the journey of deconstruction and reconstruction of faith, life, religion, and spirituality. I'm so happy today to be catching up with my very good friend, Chris Shelton, ex-Scientologist. You've been on the show a number of times. I've been on your show. So welcome, Chris, back to Mindship Podcast. Awesome. Thanks, Clint. I love being here. It's uh, It's been too long. Yeah. In fact, we just had a conversation a few weeks ago for your show. We were talking about my work on controversial pastor Doug Wilson out of Moscow, Idaho. That was a really great conversation. I was buzzing when that was done. I hope that comes out soon, actually. I want to go back and listen to it. We said some good stuff. I don't remember exactly what we said, but I love that conversation. Yeah, it'll be a few weeks from now, and I am really looking forward to it. I'm in a very unusual situation of having a a long mm-hmm. uh, number of podcasts in the hopper right now, ready to rock. So it's yeah. uh, so it's good. I've been in that situation before, where you suddenly it, I don't know how it works for your show, but I'll either contact people or I'll just have people contact me, and all of a sudden I'll have a booking, a bunch of bookings, one after the other after the other, and I'll have like four or five, six episodes already recorded. And then by the time they're released, it might be a couple of months down the pipeline. So that's the situation you're in now, it sounds like. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And it's and it's rare because sometimes it's, you know, the day before and you're posting, yeah. right? And then <laughs> other times, like, ah, I got all the time in the world. So it's it's a real <laughs> feast or famine kind of kind of an industry, I think. Yeah, I'm, I'm in the other opposite situation that you right now, this episode that you and I are talking about now is going to go like straight up. Because I've, I've, I've got several people queued up to, to interview in the next couple of weeks. But I was thinking about this the other day. I don't actually have any recordings in the bag. So this is going straight out. It'll be out this awesome. week. So this is really good. I just have good. to edit it and, and throw it out there. So, yeah, I'm really looking forward to whatever it is we're going to be getting into. Yeah, what you got for me today? Well, I'm interested in this topic of obviously, you know, we've talked about cult recovery, cult psychology, cult tech. We've done a number of things on Lifton's markers of cults and things like that. But, you know, I'm reflecting on the first time I had, I think I had you on my show years ago, five, four or five years ago. And that was really a life-changing thing for me. I'm sure I've mentioned this to you before, but you changed my life. And I'll I'll tell you why, because you really did. I know it's, it's (laughs) it's hard to comprehend, but it is, no, it is true because I think I've mentioned this before that you were the first person I talked to as as an ex-Scientologist, me as an ex-Evangelical, and I'd been studying cult psychology, studying cult tactics and things like that. When I compared notes with you, uh, on paper, I thought we won't have anything in common. But the reality of it was, as we found many, many times that we talked since then, that yeah. we we have a shared sort of set of circumstances that we went through, you as a Scientologist, me as a, a sort of a fundamentalist Christian, and that opened my mind up to a whole new sort of world of possibilities, cultic psychology, cultic tactics across a range of belief systems. So I really do appreciate what you're what you've done and what you're still doing. Uh, well, thank you. And I, I you know, that's a that's a really good point, too. I mean, definitely glad that we connected. And I can't believe it was so long ago. I know. Shocking. But, uh, damn. 
Um, but you know, it speaks to something with this because it was a similar thing for me in, in connecting with you and others from other groups. And you were one of the first people I believe I reached out to and in other groups and realizing one day, and I will never forget this. There have been real milestones along the way on recovery. And one of them was sitting at my laptop one day, realizing, holy shit, there's a cult leader playbook. Yeah, there's a, there's a set of things these guys do, and it doesn't matter if it's L. Ron Hubbard, if it's some you know off the rails pastor, if it's some guru, if it's some martial arts dojo sensei, they all do these things. And once that once that light shines, you're like, you really start looking at the world differently, you know? Yeah, you see it everywhere. It hit yeah. me during the during the Trump era. And obviously there was stuff written on the cult of Trump and everything. And I was yep. reading, I think it was Yanya Lalich's Take Back Your Life. And she goes through what you just described. There's a number of different types of cult and political cults is one of them. And when she went through and described what a political cult is, there's been numerous ones in history. Obviously Hitler, Mussolini, Stalin, and then Trump is another one in the long list of dictators that have sort of, or dictator wannabe, I should say, who's yeah. all of that playbook. And you That's just right. see it, like you say, once you start making those connections, it's, it's amazing, isn't it? Oh, absolutely amazing. And it all, it goes back to, you know, the, well, so many different places. There's so many sources for all this information from propaganda to personal, you know, manipulation tactics and psychology. And, and, uh, and now, of course, we can even get into the neuroscience of it. So it's, so there's a lot of angles of approach to understanding this topic and, taking it apart for people so that they can understand how they're manipulated so that they're not so easily manipulated. And they're, and they're really, it is a real kind of come to Jesus moment, if you will, you know, pardon expression. yeah, pardon the expression. Exactly. When you realize how vulnerable people are yourself, everybody and owning that is a very important step because we like to think of ourselves as you know, all that and a slice of bread or whatever, but it's, but we're not, we are vulnerable and we need to understand how we're vulnerable because that's the only way to build up your shield walls so that you don't, you know, go too far in, uh, becoming a member or part of either a relationship or a group situation. Mm. And part of that is the deception, isn't it? The cults use deception yeah. tactics because I think you may have described this for me before, but I should ask you again, how, for example, does Scientology function? Because you get into the sort of theology of Scientology, you ask, talk about Xenu and all this other kind of stuff. Yeah. They never tell you that on day one. How does a typical person get recruited into Scientology? Let's just say I'm walking down the street in any town, USA or London or wherever, there's a Scientology center. How does it happen? How would I get sucked into Scientology? Right. It's it's really simple. I mean, in terms of what they're trying to do, it's it's emotional manipulation and it's appeal to authority. Right. L. Ron Hubbard is this genius philosopher, discoverer, and and they're going to position him as this guy who really knows all this really amazing stuff. But more importantly, they're going to be very interested in you, you personally. What is ruining your life? What's what is your problem? What's your issue? What is it you want to resolve or deal with or handle? And everybody's got something. I mean, hardly anybody's walking around going, my life is great and everything couldn't be better, especially these days. So everybody's kind of got things that they want to deal with or handle. And Scientology will offer solutions to those exact problems. They get you to open up. They get you to get personal with them. And that's where people make a mistake is they open up too much. And this is a total stranger I'm talking about here, these recruiters. Mm -hmm. And they but they're very good and they can be very skillful and they can get you to, you know, to open up. And they'll use various they have a, a personality test or they'll do with this or they'll do with that. There's various things they have to get you to open up. But the whole point is sit down, tell me about yourself. Let's find out what is your ruin, the thing that is ruining your life. I put that in air quotes. Mm -hmm. And then here's the solution already made for you to that problem. Oh God, I didn't, you know, when I was, when I was a kid going in there, even, even having grown up in Scientology, they did have to do that little sales 
job on me. And when they did, it was very easy to do because I've been primed for it. But I almost fell out of my chair when I was told, oh, no, we've got we've got solutions to this problem you're having with communication. I was like, you do? And it was like, oh, yeah, you, you take this class and you'll and you you won't have that problem anymore. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, turns out I still had that problem. <laughs> but yeah. Uh, but they sell you really well on the idea that, you know, that they're really going to solve your problems for you. And isn't it, you know, Dianetics, the science of mental health, isn't that the sort of tagline? It's not billed as a quote unquote religion in the sense that we're going to connect you to some deity like Christianity or Islam or or whatever, some religion that has a God figure or divine sort of authority. Isn't it billed as L. Ron Hubbard invented this system it's a better system better than psychology that must explain in some part why scientologists are so antagonistic toward psychologists and psychiatrists oh very much so yeah they got to knock the competition hard and psychology is their competition as far as they're concerned but more importantly it's it's that l ron hubbard discovered these natural laws see yeah not invented that's right. not the language they use. Yeah. Yes. And these little things, these little nuances are important, right? Because mm-hmm. it's not his creation, it's his discovery. You know, Newton didn't invent calculus, he discovered it, right? Or gravity and this and that. Yeah. So it it lends more weight and importance to the discovery because it's like, oh, this is a natural law. These are how you and I work. And and yes, there is no deity figure. You're the deity figure in Scientology. The entire uh, effort is to reattain your own personal state of immortality and basically godhood. They don't use that term. Mm. They don't say we're going to make you a god. But when you look at what they do say, right, which is we're going to put you in a position of cause over matter, energy, space, time, life, and form, <laughs> that's kind of godlike, you know, and there is yeah, there's no worship, there's no deity figure. It's it's on you. And that's both part of the trap, the intrinsic part of the trap, but it's also the the path to freedom is we're going to rehabilitate you spiritually. So could you be an atheist, let's say, and be a Scientologist? You don't have to yeah. believe in a quote God figure because again, I can see where that could appeal to someone who's a, a rational realist, you know. I don't believe in a god. I'm I'm an atheist. But I could use Scientology to make my life better, to improve the my you know scientifically improve my own mental health, solve my own problems with the help of the auditing and everything else. I could see the appeal of that. Oh, big time! And in fact, the original crowd that was attracted to Dianetics back in 1950 when it first came out were engineers, scientists, people who you know science fiction readers. Uh, through Amazing or Astounding Magazine, that was how it was originally promoted, was through uh, Science Fiction Magazine. Mm-hmm. And um, the editor of that magazine, uh, I think it was uh, John Campbell, he had been absolutely taken with this. And so um, so he was, he was pimping Hubbard in his work, and it was presented as a science. It was not originally a religion. And that was, uh, those types of people were very, very much on board with that. I seem to recall, didn't L. Ron Hubbard at one point present his findings to, it was like a, a convention, a psychiatrist or psychologist convention of mental health professionals and essentially was laughed out of the room? Is that Does that sound familiar? Maybe an apocalyptic exactly. story, but yeah, he, really, he, he, did, he did put it forth as a, a science. It wasn't necessarily a religion, quote unquote. Isn't that the basic storyline? Yes. Yeah, he did. And it was... It was sent as a formalized sort of document, apparently. I mean, this is the rumor that it was sent to the APA, the American Psychological Association, and the AMA, the American Medical Association. And both of them sent it back on, this isn't scientific, we're not doing this. this There's no rigorous testing, there's no peer review, there's no, the case studies are, are sloppy. And it was, it was very, very unscientific. Hubbard really didn't have a scientific bone in his body. But he really wanted that scientific legitimacy. And for the first year that Dianetics was out, that before it bankrupted itself, by the way, oh, right. there, is there, that. There, there, there was an awful lot of effort on Hubbard's part to use uh, cytometric testing and various models, IQ tests, that kind of thing, 
to try to show and prove that Dianetics was improving people's IQ. That was the big deal back in 1950 was IQ. Mm -hmm. And so, um, so that was the sort of modeling that they were using to try to present it as a science. And every single time they tried to approach the real scientific world, they would just get laughed, you know, laughed at. And there were, there were articles in, in uh, many, many magazines throughout the United States. And, and I believe even some in Europe at the time that were lambasting dietetics as a, as a pseudoscience, because mm -hmm. that's what it is. It is. So how does a guy go from that perspective to establishing a religion? Because there's that apocryphal quote. Someone says, L. Ron Hubbard said at some point, if you want to make money, invent a religion sort of thing. Do you believe that's true? How does he go from being a wannabe sort of psychiatrist, psychologist, mental health professional? It doesn't work. He doesn't get the academic credentials or credibility that he wants. What happens in that sequence of becoming an actual religion or a church? It's a church of Scientology now. Yeah. Yeah. That's what happened exactly was he bankrupted it twice. Dianetics tanked and he, and he actually, here, here's the funny thing, here's behind the scenes on this is, so he tanks it, he, he, he totally loses all the money and then he loses it, then he gets a bailout, then he loses it again. And he is making anybody who partners with him, and this is L. Ron Hubbard, making anybody who bails him out or helps him, he just antagonizes them to, to, to the point where they just hate him. And so within a year and a half, Dianetics was actually pretty dead. And what he had to do was resuscitate this movement. And he had a very small number of people who were still listening to him. And what he decided to do was go spiritual. And he went mm. down this route where he said, due to how we use the Dianetics technique, which is a regression kind of therapy where you're recalling things in your past, he claimed that people were recalling things, traumatic episodes that had happened to them in past lives. And he said that this was scientific and that this was proven. And of course, this was just subjective anecdotes. You know, this was just people having memories and that doesn't prove anything. But he ran with it and he then evolved this whole sort of philosophic basis that there is a spiritual component to life. And we are going to call that theta or thetans. You're going to be, a, you're not a spirit or a ghost or a, a soul, you're a thetan, see? Mm -hmm. And uh, from the Greek letter theta. And that's the basis of Scientology is that it's a spiritual movement based on the idea of a spiritual existence. And we can rehabilitate you spiritually through these various techniques and methods. And that's how Scientology was born. And Hubbard used the same basic technique of Dianetics, the recall regression trauma thing, but he then started applying it to past lives as well as our current life. Right. That is the springboard for all of it. And he just let his imagination run wild for the next 36 years. Mm -hmm. And that was the basis of Scientology. I was going to say, because on some level, you could, you could probably make an argument. He must have been onto something in the sense that, yes, I think a lot of the hangups we have as adults are due to traumas that we've experienced in our sure. past. It's true. I mean, I my hangups are largely due to, you know, my religious trauma syndrome that I had. Of course. You know, of course. screwed up things that I had to go through as a Christian, you know, but right. And so there's some grain or kernel, isn't there, where you go, okay, but then where does a guy like Xenu come in? That's a whole because where do the Thetans come from? That's exactly. where Xenu comes in. <laughs> that guy exactly. doesn't tell you about oh, he didn't tell me about that when I was being recruited on the sidewalk out in front of the Scientology Center. No, it's it's a wild story, and there's so many there's so many twists and turns to it. But the bottom line is, Hubbard was chasing the the, the dollar, right? He was chasing the money, right. and he realized and and how and what he wrote in a letter to one of his associates uh, at the time, Helene O'Brien, uh, was to pursue the re, what he called the religion angle, because in 1952, having bankrupted Dianetics and having realized that he was never going to get legitimacy in any real, credible, verifiable way through a scientific approach. Well, you know, the United States is pretty slap-happy about a tax exemption for churches, and you can get away with making almost any kind of faith-based claim you want 
uh, that you cannot make if you are a licensed regulated activity like a science. Mm -hmm. So you move that whole thing over to religion and suddenly all the things that you could promise when he was promising with Dianetics that he could cure cancer or leukemia or bad eyesight or gout or arthritis, you can't make those claims as a science. You'll get sued out of existence. But as a religion, mm. hey, it's all faith, baby. And that's exactly where he went. And he pursued that angle. And by 1953, had established the Church of Scientology and about and two or three other ancillary organizations, and they filed for tax-exempt status, and they got it. So by 1954, the Church of Scientology was a tax-exempt church uh, recognized in the United States and then in the UK, and then from there, they expanded out, and that's how it grew as a religious entity. Mm -hmm. And they could make all the medical claims they wanted and continue to do so, and they were and and completely free of any consequence. But didn't they lose their tax exempt status at one point? Because I remember seeing that there's that video of David Miscavige saying the war is over. We've yes. won our tax exempt status back. And they harassed the IRS to the point where they just, I guess, just gave up. They were so sick of these Scientologists coming after them. What's the story there? Because they they were a tax exempt church at one point with L. Ron Hubbard. Did they lose that and then regain it? That's exactly what happened. In 1967, L. Ron Hubbard was investigated by the IRS and was found quite correctly mm. to have been uh, guilty of what's called inurement, which is personally profiting from a tax-exempt entity. And he had been just going along, like I mentioned, had bankrupted Dianetics. Well, he was, well, you know, there was so much money coming into Scientology that he didn't bankrupt those organizations, but his spending was out of control. And he would go around, literally, physically go around to the organizations around the U.S. and otherwise, and he would just take money or take loans or demand money from them. And he was furnishing and, and financing his own lavish lifestyle to the point where he had even purchased a, a, a castle, a manor in the U.K. in St. Hill. And uh, and had numerous other properties and cars and boats and motorcycles. I mean, he was just going crazy with living it. Large. Oh, he was living very large. He had <laughs> five kids with with his third wife at this point. So he um, he had settled in the UK. And in 1967, the the IRS said, "Yeah, we're game's over, buddy. You're you've you've had a nice run, but we're going to cut you off now." And they cut off the tax exempt status of the Church of Scientology. Hubbard refused to comply with their demands and orders to pay taxes. The church did not pay taxes for decades. They just mm -hmm. absolutely refused. All through the 70s, all through the 80s, and things really started heating up in the late 80s after Hubbard died in 1986, and David Miscavige took over. And it was do or die at that point because they had accumulated a tax bill of over a billion dollars. It was not chump change. Mm -hmm by this point and they were on the edge of extinction as a as an entity the irs was coming after them and what they did in reply was in the late 80s i don't know um you know people with long memories the irs was 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 pretty reviled they were pretty publicly hated and scientology really added a lot of fuel to that fire with public media and information campaigns to uh, basically blacklist, you know, to, to, to say how horrible and abusive and awful the IRS is. And honestly, the IRS was pretty abusive and yeah, awful. They, were. So they deserved some of that. <laughs> they definitely deserved it. They earned all of that. But they're still the tax collection entity for the United States government. There isn't another one. And the church owed, and they owed big time. And so Miscavige started leveraging not only public media campaigns, but also individual lawsuits against the IRS to the tune of over a thousand lawsuits wow. that were filed against the government. And people think the government and the and entities like the IRS have unlimited budgets. And I'm here to tell you, they don't. And they get, a, they get an allocation of money and that's what they got. And their legal bills were only able to deal with so much. So the, so the Scientology actually accomplished what many other organizations did not. They actually got the IRS to blink 
1993, uh, they, I think in 91, Miscavige went and personally met with the IRS commissioner and worked out a deal. And over the next two years, they worked out all the details. And by 93, they had gotten their tax-exempt status back. The IRS basically capitulated. It was a very weak-kneed move. They never should have done it, mm-hmm. but they did and um, as a result, Scientology got their tax exempt status back. Yeah, the war is over. Yeah, is that why? Is that why uh, L. Ron Hubbard was living on a yacht the last eight or ten years of his life? Well, he was basically fleeing. I seem to remember the story. He would go from place to place, and nobody wanted him. He was like a man without a country, a man without a nation. No, no country would let him in their borders. You know, he would go from place to place. Was that kind of why he was? It was a dodge of the IRS because he was in he was in so much trouble financially and legally. Yeah, that's exactly why, and that <laughs> is why he died. That's exactly why he died yeah. in hiding. He he ended up coming back to the states, sort of secretly. They kind of knew where he was, maybe, but it, you know, it's not really. He was a tax evader. He wasn't like a mass murderer, so they didn't. You know, they weren't really going after him. But they, but he was in hiding, and he, uh, and he died alone in seclusion, a, a dismal failure, and absolutely crazy. I mean, I use that term advisedly. I mean, he was, he was bonkers. Uh, he had really lost the plot in so many ways. Um, so yeah, from 1967, when they, when they came after him on Enormant, is when he went out to the ocean. He, he went out on the on boats. And he took his most loyal followers with him. And they, that was the establishment of what was called the Sea Organization, as in S-E-A, the sea, as in out on the ocean. Yeah, it was a naval yeah. sort of thing, wasn't it? Yeah, that's right. It was a whole naval outfit. And yeah. uh, and they sailed around all through the 70s until they came into Clearwater, Florida in the late 70s, settled there, which is where their major base of operations organizationally is now, is in Clearwater, Florida. That was all established in the late 70s. Hubbard went into hiding immediately and ended up uh, out in California, and that's where he died in 86. Mm-hmm. Would you say now, this is kind of a two-part question, so obviously David Miscavige is in charge now. He took over after Hubbard died. Would you say that Hubbard fits the sort of classic cult leader profile as described by sociologists? You hear about you know, characteristics like a charismatic leader, sort of like without accountability, has a loyal cadre of followers around him. Usually it's a man. It's Sometimes you have a woman, but usually a man, isn't it? Would you say he sort of fits that? And then how did Miscavige take over? Because one of the things about a lot of cults is when the big main leader, the originator of the cult dies, the cult dissolves. But in this case, it hasn't dissolved. How how does that sort of happen? So it's kind of a two-part question, I guess. Sure, yeah, no, absolutely. The entire structure of Scientology was built up to for inurement. I mean, that really is what it was about. And it was about enriching Hubbard. And he created such a body of work, so many lectures and bulletins and writings and books, that people look at that and they can't believe somebody could do all that and just call it a con. And it's and it is a little bit more complicated than just a con. But um, but it is a con. It is a scam. Right. It is yeah, a, yeah. Yeah. It's a yeah, money-making operation. That, yeah. that, that is what it is. So, and everything around it, all the religion and the, and the crosses and the symbols and the buildings and all of it, it's all just window dressing for a scam. Now, that being said, Hubbard built this thing up and then he kind of got a lot of help through legal and organizational means to build a labyrinth of corporations that make up the Church of Scientology. It's not just a one monolithic entity, it's hundreds of them. And it's a legal labyrinth trying to undo it, and, and it, nobody's really succeeded at taking it apart in the court system. Judges don't have time, and nobody's really done the due diligence to break it all down, really. So that's how they keep going, is this labyrinth of corporations and plausible deniability and various other things and front groups. It's, it's very complicated. Hubbard set all that up before he died, and that was there was there were efforts being made to get Hubbard out of hiding and 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 deal with the IRS and deal with all that stuff. But then Hubbard died in the middle of all that going on, that whole corporate restructure and everything that happened in the 1980s. David Miscavige was at the head of that big project and other key projects at the time 
So he was perfectly placed and he had the perfect force of will and intent to take over. So when Hubbard died, there was about a year power struggle, you could say. There was a period of time where it wasn't really clear who was going to be in charge. He didn't name a successor, as it were. He did not. Right. Now, of course, as we are talking right now, history has been rewritten. Mm -hmm. And then was always the successor. (laughs) He was no pretender to the throne. Yeah, he was not at all. He was always the heir in waiting, the heir apparent. That's right. He he lucked into it and he pushed him hard into it. And he ruthlessly, and I mean ruthlessly. I heard there was some politicking. Oh, he got rid brutal. of anybody. He was brutal. There were Earned, hundreds, really. there were hundreds of people who ended up being sacrificed. Now, I don't mean I don't mean physically. I don't mean yeah. to die, but organizationally, religiously, they were they were shunned. They were kicked out. Their lives were ruined. They were investigated. Uh, sometimes, uh, you know, criminal stuff. I mean, there was really nasty stuff going on. This mm-hmm. was not just some conversations miscavige was ruthless about it and he took out anybody who was going to get in his way and he's basically run the organization like that ever since right so yeah ruthless purge collect stalin taking over just literally purging people left right and center anything anyone who's a threat or even a perceived threat you're gone you're out of here yeah absolutely brutal sort of thing isn't it well, I'm interested, yeah. uh, when, let's take a break for a minute. I'm interested when we come back from the break, I want to talk about the sort of psychology. And I, there was a, a comment you made a minute ago that I want to go back to because it triggered me to something about Christianity. So I'm interested to get into some of the psychology when we come back. When we get back from the break in this chat with Chris Shelton, we're going to talk about some of the psychological aspects of this. I've talked with Chris about this a few times before, but I'm really interested to find out how he, as an ex-Scientologist, has come to go through his recovery process. How has he done that in the 10 or so years since he left this cult? And then we kind of touch base, we compare stories, as we've done before, between me as an evangelical, I should say ex-evangelical, and him as an ex-scientologist. What we find, as we mentioned already, is that the psychology, the tactics among group-to-group, high-control religious groups, not just necessarily religious groups, but they're very similar. And so the recovery aspect of it tends to follow a similar path. So if you're coming out of a high-control group or any sort of cultic environment, you're going to be interested to catch the second half with Chris in just a few minutes. I just wanted to mention what's coming up here in the next few episodes. I've got a scheduled call with Vinny Koshis next week as I'm doing this recording now. She's an ex-cult member. She lives in my old hometown of Seattle, Washington. We're going to be touching base there. And then I've still got Elgin straight. We're going to be doing something hopefully around the month of May. So that's still on the line. And I'm also working on that follow-up episode with this issue of Doug Wilson and the book Southern Slavery as it was. I've got a load of content written on that. So I just need to go through it and sort of refine it. But I'm probably going to do an episode on that. It's going to be another long one on Doug Wilson. I've kind of taken a break from him. But speaking of Doug Wilson, actually, you're going to want to catch this. I was on Chris Shelton's Sensibly Speaking podcast, and we went through the whole Doug Wilson saga and, again, compared that to other sort of known cult leaders and broke him down. That's going to be on his show coming up maybe in a month or so. So I'll keep you apprised of the uh, situation with Chris Shelton and that episode on Doug Wilson. And, in fact, speaking of Chris Shelton, he's going to be coming back just in a couple of weeks here. I think it's going to be on the 23rd. Yes, it's the 23rd of April at 8 o'clock UK time, which would be 12 noon on the West Coast and 3 p.m. on the East Coast in North America. How can you get on that call with Chris? You can be on that call by becoming a Patreon supporter of the show, and you have exclusive access to those calls we do every month. We'll take a break for the summer, so we're going to have one or two more calls coming up, but we've got this one with Chris coming up, and then in the month of May... We've got returning guest Nate Manderson. He's coming back around, I think, the second or third Sunday of May. So we're going to have that call with Nate. So how can you be a a supporter of the show? The links to that, as always, are in the show notes. That gets you early releases every week, as well as getting access to our Closed Mindship Podcast Facebook group. So 
If you want to support the show on Patreon, join in on that call with Chris Shelton coming up just in a couple of weeks as we're doing this recording now. All right, let's get back on into this episode, looking at this issue of cult psychology. We're talking with Chris Shelton, looking at cult control, coercion, and manipulation, especially as it relates to Scientology. Now, you mentioned earlier when we were talking about the psychology, how does a person get sucked in? You said something and it just triggered a thought. You were talking about the the Scientology recruiter, the person out on the street, the pavement, the sidewalk, whatever, is going to be presented with that problem, the bind that you, and we have the solution. And that's what struck, when you said that, you could have just changed the words as an evangelical, the ex-evangelical. That's exactly what we would have said. Your problem is you're a sinner bound for hell. You know, you're in danger of God's judgment. However, here's the good news. You know, Jesus died on the cross for your sins. You can go to heaven. You can become a Christian, blah, blah, blah. So the dynamic is exactly the same, you know? So that, that really struck me that we're talking about the same sort of tactics and psychology, aren't we? Oh, very much so. Very much so. And in fact, let me say that, you know, what's become clear to me over the years as I've gone deeper and deeper into trying to figure out the psychology of this is it is it's preying on emotional needs what you said what i've said right both of those the common denominator there is you're dealing with somebody who is unfulfilled or is somehow needing something in their life and we all have emotional needs that's not a bad thing we we're human of course we do there's no getting around that but but cults will prey on those emotional needs by pretending to offer and i really got to stress and underline and boldface pretend to offer solutions to those emotional needs right if you if you lack community in your life if you lack support in your life if you lack uh, people who like you in your life you know i mean there's a lot of different emotional needs and if you have that and you know that that's a problem for you and you want help fulfilling those needs these groups will give you manipulated deceiving messaging that will give you the idea that they're there for you, that they're going to help you, that they're going to be the solution to your problem. Mm-hmm. And that's really where it comes down to is that. How do you see it now? You left. I mean, how long has it been since you walked away from Scientology? How many years now? Ten. Ten, ten years. years. So, I mean, again, our lives are eerily parallel because that's that's about... 10 or 11 years, 12 years, maybe since I walked away from the church. So you were leaving Scientology as I was deconstructing and walking away from, we didn't know each other 10, 12 years ago, but (laughs) how interesting, but I grew up in it. Were you born into it? Cause I think I've asked you this question before. Your parents were Scientologists, weren't they? You were basically born in. Yeah. I'm second gen. I, I got in when I was about three or four years old. So for all intents, I was born in. Yeah. Yeah. Same, same with me. I was born into the church. In fact, I was before we hit record. I was doing a little bit of writing. I don't know. I've got a. It's either going to be an audio book or something. I just I'm writing my thoughts down. But I was reflecting back on my life growing up, how I was baptized three times because every time the first one didn't work, the second one didn't work. You know, the third one. Surely the third Find one. Charm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, third, that's exactly the name of the thing. Baptism third times a charm. But now I'm reflecting on it as an adult, as an ex-evangelical, and thinking my views of evangelicalism Christianity have radically changed since I left when I when I first left I, there was a lot of anger a lot of bitterness then I kind of was a resigned sort of like oh this is kind of funny but now I see it it's, it's quite insidious and we've talked a lot about the Dominion theology the Christian right how do you see Scientology now what, what have you gone through in your sort of permutations in those 10 or 12 years oh a lot and it's very similar to you in fact a lot of anger to start with um mm-hmm trail of course the you know the 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 fact that i had been lied to and deceived and it sacrificed decades of my life to this cause that was not an easy thing to get over and it took years then you kind of then i sort of got a more moderate approach to it sort of realized my own responsibilities in that my own you know how i had victimized others as well as being victimized and i had to kind of deal with that you know, uh, how, do, how do you go about reconciling the fact that, um, 
you know, that I, I, I recruited other people into this. Sure. I took their money. I convinced them to do it. I got their kids in. I mean, I, I did things that I'm not proud of, right? So I had to deal with that and kind of reconcile myself to it. And in the course of doing that, sort of the anger died off and I just kind of realized a more, a more level-headed look at what was going on. And now that I'm kind of past that, I don't any longer feel any shame or blame or regret about any of that. It is what it is. And I did what I did and I own it. And, and that's, and I don't have to feel bad about it. It just is what it is. Yeah. Now I look at this predatory group that is headed up by a psychopath and I go, well, it's predatory group headed up by a psychopath. So of course there's going to be awful abusive behavior and there's, and there's not, and at first there was a lot of effort and there's, and this is not uncommon for people coming out of cults. There was a lot of effort to try to, to rationalize or, well, there's still some good in it. Well, there's this, mm-hmm. or, well, there's that, or, well, this is true. And I don't give any of that. I, I give no quarter anymore on any of that. That's just nonsense. Scientology is bad from beginning to end. And while there are little kernels of things you can pull out and go, well, sure, this little thing right here kind of makes a little bit of sense. You look at all the things around it you'd have to get to to find that, mm-hmm. and you go, yeah, that's not worth, not worth it. it. Yeah, worth anybody's Tiny time. Kernel of, yeah. yeah, right? And, and of course there are, because why would anybody stick with it if some of it didn't work sometimes? True. But to think all of that is universal truth on the level of, of physics or engineering, and that's what Hubbard says, total nonsense that, that that's not true at all it's a very destructive activity with with the entire purpose of deceiving manipulating and ultimately bankrupting its membership that's yeah. what it's about and yeah. there really isn't any other way to sugarcoat that you know and i don't think it should be sugarcoat so that's mm-hmm. kind of how i look at it now i'm pretty like yeah this is bullshit yeah and and a lot of my video work and a lot of the things that I do on my channel have been deconstructing and taking that apart for people so they can see that. Mm-hmm. I was just going to say, though, you just described a lot of the keywords that, that you could label any cult, couldn't you? Manipulation yeah. of members, exploitation of members, physically, emotionally, economically, sexually. These are the things that, that are hallmarks of cults, aren't they? I mean, oh, yeah. where, does, where does Scientology fall on that sort of influence continuum? Because you could say, okay... Is it a destructive cult? They're not like Om Shinrikyo and you know releasing sarin gas on the t- subways in Tokyo. They're not the Manson family murdering people. They're not the Jonestown, the David Koresh. They're not killing people per se. But are they a destructive cult in other ways? Would you say where are they on that influence continuum? Oh yeah, no, they're very destructive. That that the, the, the I, see, I don't really draw lines there, and the reason why is because while we can look at the short span destruction of David Koresh, for example, and, the, and when the FBI and the ATF got involved and things went completely out of hand, and it didn't have to go that way, but it, but it did, we can look at that and go, okay, that's, that's really crazy, that's really bad, but there's a 10-year backstory to that, which involves child abuse and pedophilia and mm-hmm. gun running and illegal activities and ruined lives. And that part of the story doesn't really get talked about as often. So I look at Scientology and I go, well, could there be an outcome like that? Possibly. If things go out of hand, they could get that way. Mm-hmm. But I look at the long-term 50-year, 60-year uh, existence of Scientology, and I see tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of bankruptcies and ruined lives deaths actual deaths caused by scientology Hmm. and 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 lots of other problems and issues and i go this is destructive on every metric i can imagine Hmm. so i don't feel the need to kind of you know nuance that quantify it yeah in that regard right they're no they're not engaging in mass suicide they are not you know marshall applewhite and elron hubbard are definitely different people they're not going to go uh, all suicide and, you know, to go up to the hail bop comet, but 
it's a slow death in Scientology. <laughs> you know, it's a it's a longer term thing. And people say, you know, people get involved in this with absolutely no idea that 10 years later, their own kids are going to hate them mm-hmm. because they suddenly start realizing Scientology isn't all that. And their kids are in the Sea Org yep. or are working for the church or something like that. They have no idea that's coming. But that's mm-hmm. an that's an almost inevitable conclusion of becoming part of something like Scientology. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of that came across in the Leah Remini series. Yeah. Uh, I know you were on, I think, one of the final ones, weren't you? But, I, I was know, doing those shows. Yeah, it was great. Yeah, you were in those. But I remember, why, I think I watched, there was a couple, maybe two, three seasons of it. And it was kind of shocking to learn about, you know, while well, putting people in the hole and things like that. You think, my God, that opened a lot of people's eyes to how bad some of the top leaders you know, Mike Rinder and some of the others were shoved in a hole somewhere in some compound in California and basically imprisoned. And it's like, whoa, <laughs> this yeah. is yeah. really, really, really bad. They are not joking around. I mean, the thing about Scientology is when you really get up to its upper levels, these are very serious people who have mm-hmm. very serious intent and they do not screw around. And if they, if they, they beat on each other, they are, there is false imprisonment, there is kidnapping, there is there is a lot of nasty stuff that goes on in that group. Mm-hmm. And I think we've done a show on this where we, we went through Robert Lifton's eight markers of cults. We compared Scientology versus evangelicalism. My experience is yours. And I think the two that stand out to me, I mean, they're all, they all are applicable, aren't they? But the two, the doctrine over person and then the dispensing of existence, because as an ex evangelical, I see doctrine over person. It's, it's like when you side with the, the doctrine over your personal belief or your your personal relationship with another person so you could destroy someone's life because you're believing the truth in air quotes and so your doctrine takes precedence over personal relationships and then if it gets to a certain point they shun you i mean scientology is is one of the most they've mastered the art of shunning excommunication i mean how bad is it to be shunned and labeled a suppressive person in scientology yeah, that's where I've been for the last ten years, and it's, it's you're an SP. Yeah, I'm in a, I am an SP. I'm official. And... Wait a minute, why am I talking to you again? <laughs> I should be shutting you. Oh wait, I'm not a Scientologist anymore. Yeah, it's wild. It's <laughs> it's uh, it's a radical <laughs> it's a radical shift in your life when it happens to you. I'll tell you that mm. because people you've known for twenty years suddenly won't even look at you. I mean, it's right. that ghost you that fast. It's I mean, I lost. Uh, I, I had gotten out of the Sea Org and I was now a public Scientologist. So I was making Facebook friends and I was on social media and stuff. I lost all of that overnight. Like overnight, they were all gone. And it's that quick and that efficient. And they and then, of course, you're open to what's called fair gaming, where they will mm-hmm. come after you if you start speaking out publicly. And I've been, you know, I've I've had various things, nothing at all like like Mike, Mike and Leah and you know Tony Ortega and so many other people who have who have really taken the shellackings for all of us. Um, I I've lucked out in that regard that they haven't come after me as hard, but it happens. You know you get you get that kind of thing, uh, and they will go higher. This is how crazy this group is. They will spend tax exempt dollars hiring private investigators, mm-hmm. uh, cops, lawyers. PIs, you know, anybody they can get who will, who doesn't have a moral compass and will take their money to follow you, stalk you, harass you, go through your garbage, call your friends and family and tell them how uh, bad you are, uh, investigate you, right? Uh, I mean, they'll do stuff that is just insane to try to disrupt your personal life because they want it because they're so vindictive. They want to get back at you. Mm-hmm. So it's 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 a it's a nasty group, you know, that people who are trying to save the world and are trying to make lives better for people don't do stuff like that. They just get on with it. If they yeah. if they if you don't like that group and you don't want to be part of it anymore, it shouldn't be a problem. Yeah, get, get on with your life. Yeah. Yeah, just okay. There's the door. Yeah. Bye-bye. It didn't work out. No big deal. No, 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 no. That's not these guys, right? That's not these guys at all. And they're not making the world a better place. That's the thing that we end up exposing. We go, hey, they say they're doing this and this and this and this, but you know what? They're not. They're actually doing this and this and this and this. 
And this is all bad. And this is what they're doing with the money. And this is what they're doing with the resources. And Scientology loses, you know, Miscavige and Hubbard and all of that. They would, they, they lose their mind over that stuff. Mm -hmm. I remember watch, I've watched a few documentaries about Scientology. There's the one, it's a panorama. I think it is a British one. Yeah. I'm sure you've seen, and they stalk this reporter, this journalist from Britain, and he's in Los Angeles and he flies, I think, to Florida and they pop up in Florida. And then yeah. they figured out the flights he was on. They knew where he was going to be. They were that tailing him that closely, just sitting out in front of his house for days and days and, you know, harassed. They weren't overly harassing. They were just there. There was like a presence well, all no, the time. Well, I'll, let me correct you on that because that, though, huh? that was John Sweeney. And I might he, be getting my documentaries mixed up. Yeah. Well, and, and the, B, the BBC Panorama documentary with John Sweeney was actually infamous because they not only did exactly what you just said, but they did harass him and they would not let up on calling Relentless. him a bigot. They kept calling him a bigot. You're a bigot. You're a bigot. You're a bigot. <laughs> because they knew they had investigated him personally and they knew that was a trigger word for him. And because he's a reporter, he's not a bigot. He's trying to report on a group. Yeah, objectively. He, yeah. Hitting him until he finally blew up. Yeah. And when he blew up, they got it on camera and they went, ah, ah see? He's out of control. The he's classic passive aggressive <laughs> thing, isn't it? I'm not the one who's out of control. Look at you. You're the one who's losing it. Yeah, exactly. now we got you. And I, I still remember there's that famous clip of Mike Rinder when he was a big Scientology executive. I think he might have been in London. And yep. he's just red faced berating these reporters. And he's just, he says, now I look back at that person. I'm like, who the hell was that guy? You know, completely brainwashed, completely into it, defending all of it. You know, he knew a lot of the stuff he was saying at the time wasn't true, but he, it didn't matter. He was, he had to defend it at all costs. That's how bad he was or how far he was into it. Wasn't it? That's right. That's right. And I was the same way. I, you know, I wasn't on the mic this, that then for the church like he was. <laughs> Excuse me. But I was in the exact same headspace. And I would have been, I would have taken a bullet from a scavenge. <laughs> I mean, I was that far gone, you know, in thinking that this was the thing that was absolutely necessary for the survival of our entire species and planet. That's how far down that rabbit hole I was. And I had been there my whole life. So it wasn't like I went crazy one day. I was raised to believe this stuff. So was Mike, by the way. He was also raised, yeah. you know, on boat with Hubbard. So, you know, so we came from a fanatical headspace, not just a believer headspace. We were all in and we could not think a critical bone in our body. We didn't have a critical bone in our body to think about this stuff and it took a uh, it took years of abuses before both of us uh in our own separate ways woke up to what the hell was going on and got out hmm. well something you mentioned at the end of the show that we did the other day on your podcast on doug wilson and all the rest of it we got into you mentioned something right at the conclusion of the show you had a kind of a call to action you said if people are out there listening and they are you know hung up on cult recovery cult you know coming out of a high control religious group reach out to me and we can talk what kind of advice would you give someone like that because obviously there's going to be people listening to this show maybe ex-scientologists ex you know cult members ex-high control religious groups how do they get help because there's so much to unpack isn't there oh so much so much and i my approach is very educational i am not a therapist so when i consult with people i'm not giving them therapy I'm giving them advice, direction, and education. And a lot of the educational work that I've done, I, you know, I went and got a master's degree in psychology and coercive control and this kind of stuff. And there's a lot to know. There's a lot to unpack. Mm -hmm. We talk about lifting. That's one part of a body of knowledge about cults and manipulation and deception and coercive control. And so I believe very, very firmly that anybody's recovery process is going to be in... It, I don't think it's really possible personally to do a recovery from a cult situation, like a real cult situation or an abusive relationship kind of situation without doing that education, right? Learning. And you don't have to go get a whole degree in course of control, but you should know some things, right? You got to know it's isolation, manipulation, control. You got to know how these things work. You got to be able to see the red flags before 
they're hitting you in the face and ruining your life. Mm-hmm. And that's what I try to arm people with when they come to me and we go over the process of it. It's, you know, you do counseling to deal with the trauma and that's, and trauma is trauma. And you got to deal with that through psycho- psychological means. Um, but when it comes to arming yourself and leading your life into the future, what groups are you going to be part of in the future? Cause you're going to be, who are you going to know? Who are you going to connect with? Mm-hmm. Who can you trust? How do you know? What are boundaries? That's an important issue for people coming out of cults to learn about because cults tear down boundaries. Yeah. They're all about removing your boundaries. So you have, you have total trust and faith in the group and you're supposed to give everything to them. And then supposedly the idea is they will give you your heart's desire. It never works out that way. So how do you make sure you don't fall into another cult situation? You got to learn about these things like boundaries and relationships mm-hmm. and attachment and this kind of stuff. And that's kind of how I, how I approach it with people. And so far it's been very, very, it's been very successful. It's true. And as you say, education, I think is a huge piece. I remember reading last year, Amanda Montel's book, Cultish. And what really struck me about that was what you just said. She talks about, you could go to a Peloton class or a CrossFit or a gym or something like that and suddenly be sucked into a cult-like environment with a, a cycle teacher or a guru at a gym or something like that. Yeah. So it can happen to anybody, anywhere, in any context. It's not necessarily about religion. It could be down your no, local not. gym. <laughs> oh, oh no, no, not in. at all. I, no, a multi-level marketing. Yeah, business, uh, business scams, right. cult. life. Those, those aren't just, <laughs> yeah. they, they use all the cult stuff. Yeah, yeah. Remember Enron years ago? Yeah. Remember that company? That was yep. a cult at the top. Those guys were culty as hell. I can't tell you, I've even done a podcast with a guy, how many martial arts dojos fall into this because of the, because of the relationship with the sensei and the and the students, uh, acting classes. I mean, this political groups, sports clubs. This happens. Yep. It's a human problem. It's not a religious problem. Yeah, that's true. And I think the other thing I was going to say before we wrap up, Lifton to me was such an important part of my cult recovery. When I read through his, you know, cult reform and the psychology of totalism, or thought reform and the psychology of totalism. He talks about not only the eight markers of cult. So on the one hand, I felt like I was able to describe what had been done to me, how they did it. But on the other hand, he talks about the psychological effects of each one. So when you get manipulated, when you are coerced in these ways, how does it make you feel? What does it make you do psychologically and emotionally? And a lot of things started triggering for me because I realized not only were those the tactics that were used on me, it's how it made me feel at the time. And that was a big part of it. I don't know if that's helped you at all, kind of re, re yeah. going back and looking at those, the, the, the psychology and the tactics, the emotional component of it. Absolutely. In fact, that's, I would say that's a, a foundational to, to my own work and, and my yeah. own research is, has been the emotional manipulation and the fact that emotional needs are, are actually even more baseline to us than than the need for critical thinking you know i came out of the gates running with critical thinking because it's so important to be able to spot illogic and and, and logical fallacies and nonsensical thinking and pseudoscience and be skeptical that's all very very legit and valid stuff and you have to learn that stuff but there's an underlying stuff there there's underlying psychological principles of emotional needs and emotional manipulation and and all the critical thinking in the world is not going to save you from emotional manipulation. They're two very different realms, and you have to really understand both. And that's why I bring in emotional intelligence mm-hmm. as a key part of cult recovery is is developing your own emotional intelligence, both as a for self awareness of your own emotional state, and also recognizing you know when people are trying to emotionally manipulate you. Mm-hmm. All right. So as fascinating as this conversation is, I want to leave people wanting more. And there is a way that you can do that because Chris, as it turns out, is coming back in just a few weeks. You're going to be our guest on our next MindShift Zoom call. So I'm going to put a shameless plug in. We're going to have Chris for an hour. So if you want to be a part of that call, uh, I mean, I've obviously talked about it at the break, how you can become a Patreon supporter of the show. But 
Thank you, Chris, so much. How can people find you on social media? Where's the best place to get a hold of you? What's your podcast all about? Okay, great. So you can find me on YouTube at uh, Chris Shelton MSC. That's uh, that's the name of the channel, and it's uh, it's cults recovery, uh, you know that kind of thing. I have a, a huge library of information there. It's all most of it is evergreen. You can you can watch stuff from eight you know eight seven years ago, and it's still good. Mm-hmm. I have uh, Twitter, uh, you know, and again under my name Chris Shelton, and I think I have a I have a, a Facebook page. You can you can look me up. Right, so there's ways to get a hold of you. And then, as I mentioned, Chris is going to be coming back in just a few weeks for our April Mindshift Zoom call. I am so looking forward to that. We're going to have an hour to spend picking your brains again. So thank you so much, Chris. I will see you in a few weeks. Take care, and I will speak to you soon. See ya.